0: Good morning again. All right, all right. Thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, This morning, I want to begin by asking you a very important but possibly divisive question. Have you started listening to Christmas music yet? Well, I have not, but my, my wife is very eager this year to begin all things Christmas. I think actually this morning when I came down, there was a little little Christmas music on, maybe. maybe. Uh, Christmas movies, decorations, wrapping gifts, and of course, Christmas music. Uh, Perhaps some of you are in the same boat, as it seems. Uh, There's just something about listening to, to Christmas music that sort of ramps you up and builds the anticipation for the season, uh, music and song have that unique ability to stoke our affections for what's coming. This morning, we are stepping away from our series through Mark's Gospel to begin a six-week Advent series called "Songs of the Messiah." the The songs I have in mind are six psalms that uniquely point to the coming. Of Jesus Christ into the world. And really the rationale for these sermons is the same as the rationale for listening to Christmas songs in November. These psalms, among others, were the songs of anticipation and the songs of longing that God's people sung as they awaited the coming of the Messiah. And while we we don't know the actual music that accompanied these songs, though that would be really cool, I wish we did, Uh, we do know that many of them were written to be sung congregationally, like we just did this morning, and that their lyrical content gives us a unique window into the excitement and the expectancy with which the Old Testament saints looked forward to the the Messiah's arrival. So my, my hope is that as we make our way through these psalms, that our hearts would likewise beat with an expectancy, that they would beat with a, a hope and a celebration as we look towards the birth of Christ and as we celebrate and remember the birth of Christ. And that on this side of Christ's first advent, right now, of course, we are on the other side of, of, of Christ's first advent, that our hearts would likewise beat with expectancy and hope as we look forward to his second advent, to his second coming, to his coming again when he comes to make all things new. So six psalms, that is six songs over the next six weeks that I hope will stir up our affections as we consider Jesus' birth. The first uh, psalm we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 45. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can turn there to Psalm 45. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's some right there on the back. Feel free to take one uh, for the service, and you can take one with you if you like. So Psalm 45, I should turn there myself. <clears throat> Psalm 45. It says, To the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes. And Cassia, from ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O oh daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bound to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you uh, for this, your word, and and now as we set our sights to think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, uh, we pray that you would help us to see rightly and to think rightly about this passage, this beautiful love song. Uh, We pray that you would stir up our affections and our hope. Uh, We pray that as we look back with thanksgiving on the first coming of Christ, that you would help us to look forward with eager anticipation to the second coming of Christ. Help us to this end, glorify your name and glorify your son this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So what we have here in this psalm is one of the greatest love songs ever written. Did, did you notice the description in the song's heading? It says, To the choir master, according to lilies, a of the sons of Korah. A love song. A love song. That's actually original to the Hebrew, by the way. That's canonical. That's not just like an added addition. The, you, you see the little titles, right? Mine has, Your throne, O God is forever. That's the title over Psalm 45. That's not canonical. That's a little, uh, you know, editorial title that's put in there. But that little heading, that is a canonical, that's in the scriptures. And we see here uh, that this song is a love song, a love song. This love song is a song about the culmination of the greatest love story that has ever been told. And everyone knows that every great love story ends or culminates with what? Where are my uh, kids? Uh, what what does every great love story culminate with or end with? What do you think? A happy ending? What is the happy ending? Usually. They fall in love, and then what? What's that? I heard someone say it. They get married. It's a wedding. A great grand wedding, right? That's the culmination of every great love story. A beautiful celebration of their union. A wedding. In ancient Jewish culture, weddings were a huge deal. Like a huge deal. The the, the bridegroom would get dressed in his best gear. He would get like his whole posse, his whole entourage, and they would march through the streets celebrating and dancing all the way to the house of the bride. And there the bride would be waiting with her entire entourage all, you know, garbed up. She's got her best gear on and she's, you know, making herself as beautiful as she possibly can. And she's there eagerly waiting for the arrival of the, the bridegroom, and he's marching through the streets. And then when he arrives, they link up arm in arm. And then their entourage becomes even bigger. And then they all march through the streets, dancing and singing. It is a huge party. And then when they get back to the groom's house, they have a big ceremony. And then a huge celebration that could last for weeks. Weddings were this, a huge deal. And that's exactly what's happening in this psalm. We learn early on that this psalm uh, that this is no ordinary wedding. This is actually a royal wedding. It's a royal wedding. In verse 1, the psalmist writes, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. But what's more is that he is not just any king. The psalmist is writing a love song about a love story about a king, but not just any king. Lots of theologians believe that the original occasion for this psalm was the wedding of King Solomon and an Egyptian princess. That could have been the event that inspired the psalmist to write these words. But as we go on, you'll see that the language that's used is so high and so exalted that it can't be describing just any earthly king. The song begins with the psalmist announcing that his heart is overflowing. Literally, his heart is boiling over with excitement. He is locked and loaded. He is ready to write and ready to sing this song that has such a pleasing theme. And and what is that theme? What is the theme that runs underneath and runs through this love story and this love song? It, It is the theme of the coming Messiah. It is the theme of the coming Messiah. You see, this is a song about a love story, but it's also a messianic psalm that points to the coming of Jesus Christ. The the author of Hebrews takes up this very psalm in declaring the supreme excellency of Jesus Christ over and above angels. In Hebrews 1.3, we read this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is speaking of Jesus. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For he's going to compare and contrast. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, and now he's going to quote Psalm 45. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, the author of Hebrews is saying that this psalm is most ultimately about Jesus Christ. This psalm most ultimately points to not any earthly king, but to the king of kings. So we have here a love story and a psalm that points to Jesus the, the Messiah. How, how do these two things come together? What we have here in this song is the coming of the Messiah depicted as a great king who comes to claim his bride. Let me say it again. What we have here in this song is the coming of the Messiah depicted as as a great king coming to claim his bride. You track it with me? Does that make sense to you? In other words, if we were to ask, what is the coming of the Messiah like? If we wanted to ask that quote, what is the coming of the Messiah like? The psalmist answers, it's, it's like a great king who comes to claim his bride. That's what the coming of the Messiah is like. It is the, the eternal love song of Jesus and his church. In speaking of marriage in Ephesians 5, Paul says, The mystery, that is, the mystery of marriage, is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do, do you see what Paul's saying? It's not that Jesus' love for the church is modeled after a husband's love for his bride. Do you see? It's not not that Jesus, it's not that the coming of the Messiah and Jesus' love for the church is a reflection of a husband's love for the bride. It's the exact opposite. Marriage is a display and a reflection of Christ's love for the church. Marriage is modeled after Christ's love for the church. And so as, as we consider the advent of Christ, this psalm Stokes our affection for and helps us to anticipate his coming by seeing Jesus as the great King of kings who comes to claim his bride, the church. And those are precisely the two things that I want to sort of camp out on this morning. Number one, Jesus as this great king. That's number one. And then number two, Jesus as the great king who comes to claim his bride. Two things Jesus as the great king. And then Jesus as that great king who comes to claim his bride. So first, Jesus as the great king. The psalmist's verses to the king begin with a cascade of praise. Right, The psalmist begins, verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Maybe that sounds to you like a weird way to start. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. The, The psalmist isn't speaking here of a shallow estimation of the king's physical features, right? He's not talking about like how physically attractive the king is, but he's talking about an appeal, an attractiveness, a beauty that comes from his personal excellence and virtue. Jesus is the most handsome of men because he is the best of men in character and honor. He, he isn't described in this way because Jesus is, is like a J. Crew model with chiseled abs. No, on the contrary, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, right? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And, and yet he is supremely alluring and supremely lovely because behind his eyes and behind his smile is pure goodness and pure righteousness and pure loveliness. Right? We say, that's why I picked the song, uh, Fairest, Lord Jesus. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer. You know, um, one of the most beautiful women I have ever known in my entire life was my grandma. She, she was, at 105 years old, one of the most beautiful women I ever knew in my entire life. And it wasn't because she met, you know, the, the worldly criteria for beauty. She was hunched over. She had more wrinkles than you could count. She had arthritis throughout her entire body. And yet, you could see just a, a loveliness in her eyes and a delight and a cheer in her smile. That's, th- that's what we're dealing with here an attractiveness a beauty that stems from the fact that that Jesus is the best of men indeed he is the perfect man and the psalmist adds that grace is poured upon his lips that is in all his speech words of grace and truth flow from his lips never a false harsh careless or, or poorly timed word. And all he says, he speaks the truth in love. And these things he is revealed as the one who is eternally favored and blessed of God. The psalmist goes on, verse three Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Let your your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. But while Jesus abounds in, in steadfast love and kindness, he is no tame king. He is no tame king. He is a conquering king, right? He has his weapon ready at his thigh to both defend against the enemy and maintain peace and righteousness. He is mighty and majestic and powerful, but he is not as the greedy kings, not as the rulers and governing authorities of our day who... Uh, Use their power and might for their own selfish gain. You know, we've just been through this political season, and and so many people, myself included, lament sort of the career politician that just uses their platform and their power to pursue their own self interest. Uh, But Jesus is is not that way, right? He he has supreme majestic power and the scripture tells he rides out for the sake of truth he rides out for the sake of meekness and righteousness he's the defender of the poor and the needy always at the ready to protect the weak from the adversary he is a king who is infinitely powerful and yet humble and meek terrifyingly fierce against those who would threaten his kingdom and yet tender with the poor in spirit and meek and with those who mourn, right? Even from a distance, his enemies don't stand a chance. The king shoots his arrows with skill into the hearts of his enemies and they are laid waste. They are utterly defeated. The enemies of the king are no match for his majestic rule. Okay, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about a king who comes to claim his bride. We're talking about Jesus who comes to claim his bride, the church. And this is the king we're talking about. The perfect man, supreme in majesty and glory, who rides out for truth and righteousness, who is full of love and kindness. In verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now we come to the heart of the matter. While this king is the most handsome of the sons of men, he is also God. He is God. Some have tried to to sort of mess with this text and make it say something else something other than what it's clearly indicating. The, the, the same king that the psalmist is praising, he now addresses as God. Verse six, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Th- this can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal son of God, equal in essence and nature with God the Father, and yet distinct in his person whose throne is established forever and ever and yet at the very same time he is the king who comes into the world and takes on flesh who is the most handsome among the sons of men he is god incarnate his kingship is divine kingship. His rule is an eternal rule. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His kingdom is one of righteousness. He is supreme in his exercise of justice for he loves righteousness and so he rewards the righteous but he will by no means pardon the guilty for he hates wickedness and punishes all evil. Therefore, God, your God, That is, God the Father has anointed God the Son with the oil of gladness. What does that mean? I I think it means both that the Father has poured out a blessing upon blessing upon the Son because of his unbridled delight in him. But also that the Son is filled to the brim with delight in the Father and in the work the Father has called him to. He is a glad king. He is a joyful king. I want to just pause there for a moment and ask you, isn't it good to know that Jesus, our king, is a glad king? That he's a joyful king? His kingdom is one of gladness and happiness and celebration and joy. It's a gladness that has its root in the son, uh, the, the, the joy that the son has in the Father and the joy that the Father has in the Son. But, but it's a joy that spills over into all his subjects, so that all who are in him also know that joy. As he says in another psalm, Psalm 16:11, that, that, that we have fullness of joy in His presence. Sometimes we think of God as this sort of mean lawmaker, who wants to, to ruin our fun. And Jesus is the enforcer who is dispatched to make sure we're all miserable. Kids, I wonder if that's how you view your parents, just as, as mean lawmakers, and they're just trying to ruin you know, your fun and keep you from having fun. But even in our salvation, we, we can be tempted to think that God only saves us into a, a life of of misery, and we are just one screw up away from Jesus, sort of unsheathing that sword and and cutting us down. But but isn't it good to know that King Jesus is the most supremely happy and joyful being in existence, and to know Him is to know that joy. Now, I don't I don't mean to minimize in any way the real suffering and hardship that we encounter in this life, many of it owing to, the, to our faith in Christ. Right? There is a painful cost to be counted in being a disciple of Jesus, a purifying fire that the Lord puts his people through to, to conform them more and more into the likeness of Jesus. But, but haven't you also known what it is to be joined to him in his joy? that even in those sufferings and even in those hardships, still He is producing and working in us a a joy beyond comparison because we have fellowship with Him. He, He strikes down to bind us up and also that we would share in His supreme gladness as King. The King that comes in this love song to claim His bride is no boring, dull, stodgy, stuffy, or stale king. No, the, the king that comes into the world to, c- to claim his bride is supremely joyful because he has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. You know, I was thinking um, about the birth of Christ. Right? This is what we're, t- we're talking about the first advent, the coming of Christ. You know, when the angel of the Lord comes to announce the birth of Christ to the shepherds out in the field, keeping their their flock by night, do you remember what the angel says in Luke 2? It says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Good news of great joy. Why is it such news of great joy? Because it is the supremely joyful king coming into the world. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ, the Lord. The psalmist goes on to speak of the pleasantness of the king. Look at verse 8. It says, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. His robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. I I had no idea what cassia is. I had to look it up. Anyone know what cassia is? Yeah, boom. It's Chinese cinnamon. Gina knew. I didn't know. Chinese cinnamon. It might seem weird here that the psalmist is, what, what does the psalmist do? The psalmist is actually trying to get you to imagine what the king smells like. That's kind of weird. But why? It's, it, the point here is, is that in his presence, there is a, a perfect pleasantness. A perfect pleasantness. To be in his presence is to be with someone that is just so pleasant and easy and delightful to be around. The psalmist speaks of the king being gladdened by stringed instruments whose music, music comes out from his ivory palaces. He is a king of a prestige and wealth and honor and abundance. And all his attendants are of royalty and his whole company embodies his magnificence. Are you hearing? Do you, do you know what I'm describing to you right now? I'm descri- Listen, I'm describing to you Jesus I'm describing to you the king of kings who comes to you and makes you his bride. In all these descriptions, though the psalmist could not have known all the details of what was to, what was to come, he, he speaks of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the, the man of perfect virtue and character who obeys and submits to the law of God at every point without fail. He is the, the righteous king of light who comes into the world to defeat the darkness. He is the king that rules with perfect justice and kindness and righteousness, who rescues the weak and the oppressed, who is tender with the needy and the poor. And he is the supremely joyful king who has all riches and all glory in himself. And so this perfectly good and perfectly powerful and perfectly kind and perfectly divine king parades through the streets on his way to retrieve his bride. And what is she doing? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Here the psalmist anticipates an expectant, though somewhat anxious, bride. I I won't ask if any of the wives here got cold feet on their wedding day, but... you you can imagine a scenario where sort of like a jittery bride needs someone that she trusts to come in and settle her down and talk with her and sort of set her straight on on what's about to happen, right? The picture here is of this king's bride in her chamber waiting for the arrival of the king. And so the psalmist pictures himself giving the bride-to-be three pieces of advice, Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. In other words, forget what's behind you. Forget what's behind you. Maybe you're anxious about leaving your family, leaving your home, or just leaving the world you know, but it's time now to cling to your husband. He's essentially reiterating the words God spoke to Adam and Eve at the very first wedding ceremony. Genesis 2, we read, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There there is this reality in marriage that the the wife, the bride, is to leave her family and the groom is to leave his family and they are to become one to form a new family. And so he says, forget what's behind, a new family is ahead of you. Uh, Second piece of advice, since he is your Lord, bow to him. In other words, submit to your husband. Your husband is your world now and the, the call of God is to submit to him to honor him, to revere him, and to respect him. Some of you might chafe at that language of of submission, but remember the character of the king she's being called to submit to. It it is no burden to submit to a husband who demonstrates a self-sacrificial love for the good of his wife. Third piece of advice, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people. In other words, look ahead. So three pieces of advice. One is forget what's behind. Two, submit now to your husband. And three, look ahead to the future. The final encouragement he gives us to look ahead with excitement to the to the abundant life that is ahead of you. The psalmist imagines encouraging the bride to be with the reality of the life that is before her at the king's side, a life where even the wealthiest people—that's why the, the 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 city of Tyre is mentioned, an extremely wealthy and rich city—and and so, so here uh, th- that city is uh co- is pictured coming to the, the the king and the new queen seeking their favor. Right, so a a life where even the wealthiest people come to you presenting gifts in search of favor. The picture is of a life unmatched by grandeur and abundance. Verse 13 gives us this picture of the bride, all glorious. You see that there in verse 13. All glorious, decked out in her finest robes, eagerly waiting to receive her king and to start their life together. She waits in her chamber. Pick, try to imagine it. Try to imagine it with me. She waits in her chamber with her entire you know, posse of girls, and they're there waiting, listening for the sound of the king and his procession coming down the road, waiting for the clapping and the singing and the dancing. And when they hear it, they know the king is drawing near. And so there she is, and she readies herself to go out to him and to process with him to their new life together. And that sounds like such a wonderful story, doesn't it? It's the the happy ending that we all crave, that the king's going to arrive, and the the king's going to take his bride, and then they're going to march off to that happily ever after. But that doesn't tell the whole story, does it? We've seen a great king But now I want you to see this king claiming his bride. You see, when Jesus Christ, the king of kings, comes into the world to claim his bride, he he finds something very different than the king of Psalm 45, doesn't he? You see, tucked there, if you you have your, your scriptures out, tucked there between verse 12 and 13 is a whole other story. It's a story of betrayal. It's a story of adultery. It's a story of unfaithfulness. You see, when Jesus comes into the world, to the home of his bride to claim her, he doesn't find her waiting. He, he doesn't find her leaving her past life behind, eager to submit to the Lord he doesn't find her looking ahead to their life together. What he finds when he comes into the world is an adulterer. He finds a bride that has sold herself to the highest bidder for cheap thrills and fleeting pleasures. While the king had pledged himself to her in faithfulness, instead of waiting devotedly for her bridegroom, she had run off looking for satisfaction. In everything and everyone. You know, there's there's another story in scripture about a husband and a wife that sounds a little bit more like what King Jesus encounters when he comes into the world. In the Old Testament, the Lord calls the prophet Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. To take to himself a prostitute. And so Hosea takes a prostitute named Gomer at his, as his wife And though Hosea is a good man who remains faithful to Gomer and only wants to do good by her, she runs off and sells herself to other men. Brothers and sisters, that's a sobering picture of your relationship to the king I've just described. The Lord has been so faithful and so kind and so gracious to you. And yet in your sin, you you deny him and chase after your sin. You see, we are spiritual adulterers. Spiritual adulterers who, though God has proven himself faithful time and time again, we are constantly unfaithful. Can't you see your own spiritual adultery? Every Every time you sin, it's it's as if you look into all the goodness of this king and then say, No, I'd rather have my sin. I'd rather have my selfishness. I'd rather I'd rather have my, my unforgiveness. I'd rather have my temper, my complaining, my lust, my sexual gratification, my pride, my comfort, my independence, etc. You fill in the blank. And so when King Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't find us as the king finds his bride in Psalm 45, all glorious in her chamber, clothed with many colored robes, interwoven with gold. Instead, he finds us homeless and he finds us in tattered rags of sin. He he finds us ravaged, violated, ruined, corrupted by our own rebellion and unfaithfulness And brothers and sisters, you need to understand something this morning. You need to understand that when King Jesus, the King of Kings, comes into the world to claim his bride and finds an adulterer, an unfaithful spouse, he would be just. It would be right of him to write a certificate of divorce, throw it at our feet and say, fine, have it your way. And walk away and leave us forever. It would be right of him. But he is no ordinary king. You see, tucked in between verses 12 and 13 is not only a story of betrayal. And a story of unfaithfulness. But a story of redemption and untold faithfulness. When Jesus, the king came into the world, he he knew that he was coming into a world that had been completely darkened by the sin of his bride. He, He knew he was coming not to be surrounded by an entourage of celebrating attendants that rejoiced in his kingship and his future union, but that he was coming to a world that utterly rejected him. But this king Jesus Christ, he is no ordinary king. He came into the world to buy back, to redeem, to rescue his unfaithful bride. Brothers and sisters, there was a procession. There was a procession through the streets of this king. But instead of being clothed in his finest attire, the onlookers cast lots for his clothes. And a crown of thorns was pressed down on his head. And there was an entourage that followed him through the streets, but they weren't dancing and they weren't singing. Instead of dancers, there were soldiers beating him. Instead of singers, his own people lined the streets and hurled insults at him. And brothers and sisters, there was also a ceremony. But at this ceremony, the king came alone and stood before the altar. But it wasn't an altar fitly decorated for a wedding. It was an altar fit for death, fit for crucifixion. And as Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was as if the father asked the son, do you take this woman? This adulterous, unfaithful, and rebellious woman to be your bride as long as you both shall live. You know, in, in every wedding there is a union, a, a joining of two lives together so that once, that what was once mine becomes ours. And perhaps that idea is most readily seen when it comes to debt and, and wealth. Right? In marriage, the debt of the individual becomes the debt of the shared couple. And the, the wealth of the individual becomes the, the wealth of the shared couple. And so it is on the cross. At the cross, Jesus takes on the burden of sin that belongs to his bride. And she takes on the perfect righteousness that belonged to him. At the cross, our sin is placed squarely on the shoulders of Christ. And he receives the full weight of our punishment for our adultery. And at the same time, Christ's righteousness is credited to us as if we were no longer the the adulterous, unfaithful bride who betrays her bridegroom, but the all-glorious bride, the all-glorious bride who is clothed in the very righteousness of Christ Christ. And at Jesus' word, it is finished. It is is as if the Father says, By the power vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Through Christ's sacrificial death, he purchased and accomplished a perfect salvation for his bride. So that through her union with him, she is made perfectly righteous. Righteous. And is perfectly suited to be the very bride of Christ. Through no effort of her own. Through no adorning of her own. She is made beautiful. She is adorned by her loving bridegroom with righteousness and life everlasting. This is the passage Jeremy read for us in the assurance of pardon. Husbands, love your wives. Listen, as Christ loved the church Jesus Christ is the king who comes into the world to claim his bride, even at the cost of his own life. And at Christ's resurrection, their union is confirmed by God. Their their marriage certificate is ratified before the host of heaven. And in his death, the bride dies to her old adulterous self. And in Christ's resurrection life, his bride is given new birth and, and new life. Now all who see their sin and their spiritual adultery are called to repent and put their faith in Christ that they might know this kind of union with Christ, that they might have their sin wiped away and be made holy and blameless before him. See, for, for all who have put their faith in Christ, the call then is to these three pieces of advice. You remember those three pieces of advice I gave you early on? See, now on the other side of redemption, the Lord comes and says, leave what's behind. I have accomplished a perfect salvation, a perfect righteousness. Now leave what's behind. Leave behind your life of sin and spiritual adultery. Submit to the, joy, to, to, to the Lord in joy. Render all of your life to him as a worship, as an act of sacrifice and faithful service. And look forward to what's ahead. While we have been joined to Christ by faith and and nothing can separate us, we are still waiting the final consummation and celebration of that union. As the bride who has been made holy, we know that the second coming of Christ is near. That he will take up his bride, the church, to be with him forever in glory when he arrives and then we will come to pass the truth of verse 15. Look at your passage. Verse 15, Psalm 45, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. What a glorious day that will be, brothers and sisters, when the king comes to the world again, when he comes again to claim his bride, and there she is waiting for him, adorned, all-glorious, not because she has anything in and of herself, but because she has been made all-glorious, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. And they join with one another arm in arm and are led off together in gladness and joy into eternity forever and ever. What a day that will be. You know, our faith in Christ is both backwards-looking as we remember the great work of salvation that was accomplished for us by Christ, but it's also forward-looking, right? While we have been joined to Christ by faith, we have yet to experience the fullness of that reality, but a day is coming, brothers and sisters, a day is coming when Christ will come again to claim his bride. The psalm ends in in verse 16 and 17 with the the celebration of their union and the announcement of the king's praises. The announcement of the king's praises being multiplied among all generations and among all nations. Look at this there. It says, in the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth, and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. It's the same description we find at the very end of Scripture in in, in Revelation 19, where the the culmination of human history is depicted as a great wedding feast, celebrating the union of Christ with his bride. Listen to these words. Revelation 19, verse 6. Before I read it, this is coming. You know, do you know why we like happy endings? there is embedded in the human heart the desire for the happy ending i don't know about you i know i know there's you know like artistic things that directors do and you know they end movies without a happy ending and that's you know that's like a thing i hate those movies i always want the movie with the happy ending right i want to get to the end of the movie and it to be this happy ending why why do we so long for the happy ending It's it's wired into us because there is a happy ending coming, really and truly. Every happy ending we experience, every little echo and shadow of a happy ending in this life is ultimately a pointer to this happy ending. And it's real. Those are fairy tales, but this is real. And it's coming, brothers and sisters. Revelation 19, verse 6. the great king who has come to claim his bride and he has done this by accomplishing a perfect salvation through his life and death and resurrection. So so as we look back on Christ and his first advent and the salvation that he's won for us, let us then look forward and wait eagerly and expectantly in faith and in faithfulness for that day when he comes again Brothers and sisters, he is coming soon. Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. And we thank you for the wonderful promises that we find therein. And we pray that you would indeed stir in us an eager anticipation and expectancy for that day. For the wedding supper of the Lamb when we will know fellowship unhindered with our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Would you do this in our hearts? Would you fill us with your joy? And would you do it for the sake of your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.